Good morning. This is Romans 8, 16 through 29, just a few verses after our assurance that we read earlier. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, excuse me, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many siblings. The word of the Lord. Whenever you're reading something, whether it's the Bible or something else, one of the main things to pay attention to is any repeated words. Whenever you see a word repeated, it's, it's the writer's way of saying, hey, this is important. Pay attention. In this passage we just read, there are several repeated words, and they're all important, but two of the biggest are the words groaning and glory. Now, groaning we're familiar with. We all know what that means. In fact, uh, if I could, I'm going to illustrate it like this. Uh, life in this world is a place where we all experience this. Who likes that sound? You have this note butting right up against this note. That creates tension. It's jarring. It's dissonant. It, it's, it, those two things don't fit together. And that's what this world is like. It's full of things that don't fit. My parents are getting divorced. My kids are struggling, and I don't know what to do about it. I'm exhausted, and I don't see any end in sight. I'm sick, and I just want this to be over. 
I'm overwhelmed by the abuse and injustice of this world. I'm lonely. In fact, I haven't been hugged by another human being in months. I'm sick. I'm hopeless. I'm afraid. I'm depressed, and I don't know what to do about it. I'm addicted, and I can't get free. We could um, include many other examples in a list like that because this world is full of things that don't fit. And when that happens, that creates suffering. And when we suffer, we groan. Everybody in this room knows exactly what that's like. But Paul, the apostle, in this passage has the audacity to say that all of our groaning in this world leads to something he calls glory. Now, what does that mean? What is this glory Paul is talking about? And how can he say that it's actually connected to all the pain, evil, and suffering of this world? Well, the answer is found in something else that gets repeated over and over in this passage, the Holy Spirit. We're in a series on the Holy Spirit. Do you ever wonder what God is doing in the midst of your suffering in this world? And do you ever wonder if it could be connected to some greater purpose? There are lots of passages in the Bible that grapple with this question, but this passage is one of the most powerful because it shows us that one of the main ways God uses our groaning to bring about glory is through the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? Well, let's take a look at this passage and see three things. We're going to look at our problem with groaning, God's purpose for glory, and the Spirit's presence in it all okay? Our problem, God's purpose, the Spirit's presence, okay? First, our problem with groaning. One of the most obvious things in this passage is how brutally honest Paul is about the reality of evil and suffering in this world. So, when we look at this passage, everything's groaning. For instance, he says uh, the whole creation has been groaning. Why is creation groaning? Right before this, he tells us creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That word corruption is a word that means decay. He's saying that that this creation is groaning because the world is literally falling apart. In other words, thousands of years before we discovered the second law of thermodynamics, which literally means this world is falling apart, the Bible was already talking about this. But it's not just creation. Paul goes on to say that Uh, we ourselves groan inwardly. So we as human beings, we're living in a groaning creation that's falling apart, and therefore our lives are going to be filled with groaning and suffering. That's just the reality of our world. That's always been a problem. The big question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? You know, one of the main responses of our modern world has been to see the presence of evil and suffering in this world as evidence that God does not exist, or that if God does exist, at the very least, God doesn't care. For instance, Ta-Nehisi Coates is one of the great writers of this generation, especially on racial issues and the African-American experience. In one of his books, he uh, talks about his own struggle to believe in God in the face of evil and suffering. He says this, I would like to believe in God. I simply can't. The reasons are physical. When I was 12, six boys threw me to the ground and stomped on my head. But what struck me most that afternoon was not those boys, but the godless, heathen adults walking by. Down there on the ground, my head literally being kicked in, I understood. 
no one, not my father, not the cops, and certainly not anyone's God was coming to save me. Now, that is a powerful argument. The presence of evil and suffering in this world is seen as is a powerful evidence against the existence of God. And listen, I don't have any irrefutable counter-evidence to prove otherwise. In fact, none of us can prove it either way. What we can do is at least be aware of some of the other options that are possible and ask ourselves the question, what makes better sense of our experience in this world? In other words, what if the presence of evil and suffering in this world isn't evidence against God? What if it's a symptom of something else? Because when you look at the Bible, and it's pretty clear that the biblical writers were not oblivious to the presence of evil and suffering in this world. Sometimes people will throw out evil and suffering as this kind of gotcha argument against belief in God, as if ancient people just never noticed this world is full of evil and suffering. In fact, it's the opposite. I mean, look at this passage here in Romans 8, or look at the Psalms or the book of Job. It's full of suffering. Look at the book of Exodus. It's all about a confrontation with oppressive slavery. Or look at the prophets who are constantly denouncing evil and injustice. In fact, I spent some time this week um, trying to think of another document in world history that is more aware of and honest about evil and suffering than the Bible. And I couldn't think of one that even comes close. If, if you know of one, please let me know. I'd love to hear about it. But here's the point. The biblical writers were, were able to be brutally honest about the presence of evil and suffering in this world and still believe in God, not because they saw it as evidence against the existence of God, but because they saw evil and suffering as a symptom of our rebellion against God. Now, those are two very different ways of interpreting the same data. For instance, imagine that you're a doctor and someone comes to visit you in your office with heart disease. So there's the data, heart disease. How do you interpret the data accurately? Well, you need to get more information. If you don't, you might just assume that this heart disease is evidence of a genetic predisposition for heart disease. But maybe you ask some questions and you find out that this person has been eating McDonald's three times a day for 10 years. And that means that their heart disease is not evidence of a genetic predisposition. It's a symptom of rebellion against their body's design because you can't do that to your body for very long without causing major damage. Friends, here's the point. The biblical writers were able to be brutally honest about the reality of evil and suffering in this world and still believe in God because they didn't see evil and suffering in this world as evidence against the existence of God, but as a symptom of our rebellion against God. Because in Genesis 1-2, it tells us that God created this world to be a place of goodness, beauty, and perfection. But in Genesis 3, the first humans rebelled, and as a result, the whole world is falling apart. Now, th those are two very different ways of interpreting the same data, but I just want to ask you, which interpretation makes better sense of our experience in this world? I mean, think about it. Why do we know so intuitively that this world is not the way it's supposed to be? If there is no God and this world is all there is, then by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be, and yet we know it's not. Why? Why do we long so powerfully for perfect peace and justice in the world? 
Why do we long for an end to war and poverty? We've never experienced those things in this world, and yet we long for them. Why? It's kind of like phantom pain. Phantom pain is when somebody feels pain where an arm or a leg used to be. But you only feel phantom pain if the limb actually used to be there. Friends, if there is no God, then evil and injustice are simply arbitrary labels that we assign to stuff we happen not to like. But if the Bible's diagnosis is correct, that means that evil and suffering is not evidence against the existence of God. It's a symptom of a much deeper malady in our world, a much deeper symptom of our rebellion against God, which means that when we groan for a better world, it's like phantom pain. We're remembering what we were originally created for and groaning over the pain of its loss. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen our problem with groaning, but next, uh, we need to take a look at God's purpose for our glory, because here's the question. If our groaning is a symptom of something good that went wrong, then what is God doing about that? Because the amazing thing about the gospel is that God doesn't respond to that the way we would respond to something like that. In other words, imagine, you know, that you are spending hours cutting, dicing, mixing, prepping a wonderful meal. You put it in the oven, but you forget to set the timer, and it gets burned. And I don't mean, oh, it's just a little caramelized kind of burn. (laughs) It's incinerated. You can't eat it. Your dog can't even eat it. What do you do with it? You throw it away. Our response when something gets ruined is you trash it. But when this world got ruined through our rebellion, does God say, oh, well, let's just junk the whole thing? No. God is not rejecting humanity and destroying the world. God's vision is to restore humanity and renew the world because the world and humanity were created for glory. Created for glory means that every human being um, was created with beauty and goodness, worth, value, dignity, and majesty. It means that every human being, in fact, every blade of grass was created to be a blindingly glorious masterpiece. We were created for glory, we lost the glory, but God's vision is to restore the glory that we were created for. And we see that everywhere throughout this passage. For instance, in verse 18, Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or a little later in verse 21, he says, creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's saying that one day, God's big vision in this world is to restore the glory that we were created for. That is amazing, but here's the really interesting thing about all of this, because on the one hand, um, the, the full unveiling of the masterpiece still awaits us in the future. The full glory that we were created for, that will only happen one day in the future. So for instance, notice how Paul says that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The full unveiling of the masterpiece is not yet. It awaits us in the future. But on the other hand, notice Paul also says that um, he talks about 
the first fruits of the Spirit, that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, first fruits is a word we talk about pretty frequently here. First fruits is a farming word. It's a way of talking about the first crop that comes out of the ground in a harvest. It's, it's, it's a preview of the rest of the harvest and a promise of more to come. First fruits of the Spirit means that when you become a Christian, that future glory for which God created you comes into your life and starts transforming you right now. So that even though the full unveiling of the masterpiece is not yet, that means that the scaffolding has already gone up around you. There are drop cloths on the ground to catch all the debris. In fact, every Christian should have a sign that says, please excuse our mess on top of them. The full unveiling of the masterpiece is not yet, but the renovation project has already begun. In fact, here's the truly amazing thing about all of this. As we've been seeing, Paul talks over and over again about God's project to restore the glory, restore the glory, restore the glory. That's great, but here's the question. Which glory? Whose glory? Notice at the very end of this passage, Paul says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? to the image of His Son. God's renovation project is to restore the glory of Jesus in us. That's what God's doing in this world. The first fruits of the Spirit means that even though the full unveiling of the masterpiece is not yet, it awaits us in the future, right now God's renovation project has already begun to make us more like Jesus. And I'm guessing that most of us would probably say, well, Jesus was a great human being. I wouldn't mind being a little bit more like Jesus. But are we really aware of what we're asking for here? Because what was Jesus, I mean, if we really want to be completely like Jesus, what was Jesus most famous for? A brutal, horrifying, excruciating death on a cross. If we really want to be completely like Jesus, notice what Paul says. He, he says that Christians are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So far, so good. But then he says, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. Yikes. Paul is saying that there's a connection between our suffering and the glory, that we can't get to the glory without the groaning in our lives. And that's hard. Everything inside of us just wants to escape from that. In fact, um, theologians have a, a name for this experience. They call it the already and the not yet. Every once in a while, theologians come up with something that's helpful. The already and the not yet. That means that the full unveiling of the masterpiece is not yet, and yet the, God's big renovation project has already begun. The already and the not yet. But here's the thing. Living in the midst of the already and the, and the not yet means that we are still groaning in this world, and everything inside of us wants to escape that groaning, escape that suffering. I mean, we see this everywhere in our world. In fact, one of um, the things we see most in our modern Western culture is this idea, I mean, even if you believe in God, the whole point of life in this world is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Therefore, we don't know what to do with suffering. For instance, the great pastor and writer Tim Keller wrote a whole book about suffering, and in that book, he quotes a doctor named Paul Brand. Paul Brand 
spent the first half of his medical career in India and the second half of his medical career in the United States. And he says this, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. We, we don't know what to do with suffering in our culture. In fact, this is not just modern Western culture. We see this even in the church, especially in what's often called the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that you, we should be experiencing full health, wealth, and prosperity right now all the time, and that if you're experiencing any suffering at all right now, then that means that you didn't claim that promise, or you didn't have enough faith, or you're not living into your destiny, or whatever it is they say. But friends, not only is that a direct denial of what Paul is talking about here, that leads to a profoundly emotionally unhealthy life. Because it means suppressing and denying real emotions, real things that are going on in our lives, things like grief and loss, things like anxiety and depression, things like fear and shame. Friends, we want all the glory in our world. We want it right now, but none of the groaning. And Paul, in this passage, is saying, sorry, that's hard. And yet, Paul is also saying that there is a sweetness in the midst of us, in the midst of this for us. What is that? Some of you are thinking, what could that possibly be? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen our problem with groaning. We need to look at the Spirit's presence in it all, because here's where we're at. Um, if God's renovation project has already begun, even though that's the case, we still experience a lot of groaning and suffering in this world, and that's hard. So the question is, what is God doing in the midst of our groaning right now? The answer is the Holy Spirit. In fact, there are two big things that we see the Holy Spirit doing in this passage. And the first is this. In verse 16, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That means, you know, when we experience suffering, one of the easiest things for us is to feel like God has forsaken us, God has abandoned us. But the picture here is of the Holy Spirit coming alongside of you and speaking into your life, witnessing into your life, saying, no, you are a child of God. You are beloved of the Father. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will hold you fast, as we sang just a little bit ago. Friends, what this means is that the Spirit is teaching us to relate to God as a loving father. You know, think about how a good parent treats a child, and I mean a good parent, which not all of us have always had, but a good parent will always be there for a child, will always love and care for a child, but a, a good parent will also sometimes do things that are an expression of love and goodness for the child, but the child is sometimes going to experience that as suffering or pain. Things like, you know, I'm sorry, Johnny, but no, you can't stick that knife in the light socket. Or, Susie, I'm sorry, but no, you can't drink that delicious-looking purple liquid you found under the sink. The kid doesn't understand that. To the child, that feels like the parent is being mean or churlish. It's like, why can't you let me have what I want? But the Holy Spirit is coming inside of our lives and, and teaching us to relate to God as a father because a good parent, there are always going to be things that a good parent will do that are expressions of love, 
but are still going to feel like suffering for the child. And the Holy Spirit comes into our life and teaches us to relate to God as a loving Father. And that leads to the next thing that we see. The Holy Spirit not only teaches us to relate to God as a Father, the Holy Spirit, notice what Paul says in verse 16, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's not just creation. It's not just ourselves. Paul says the Holy Spirit groans, which is really weird because this word groaning we've been talking about is a word that, I mean, it it means a death cry. In fact, it was used to describe the groans of soldiers who were dying on a battlefield. So people look at this and they go, how in the world could the Holy Spirit groan like this? And the answer is, because that's who this God is. He's a God who doesn't just comfort us with a little hug or a pat on the head, they're there. This is a God who enters into our sufferings, and what's more, who shares our sufferings, and even takes our sufferings upon Himself so that He can use them as one of the main ingredients in His renovation project to make us more like Jesus, because that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus groaned. Jesus let out a death cry. Jesus took all of the pain, evil, and suffering of this world upon Himself. And not only that, Jesus took all God's judgment on all the pain, evil, and suffering of this world upon Himself. But Jesus wasn't just suffering for suffering's sake. He was suffering for the sake of transformation. And that's why Paul gives us that incredibly famous verse in verse 28. He says, And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now remember, God's purpose, what is it? To make us more like Jesus. But how does God do that? He takes all things, all things, including our groaning, including the evil and the suffering in our life. He takes all things and He works them together for good to make us more like Jesus. Now, that does not mean that the evil things aren't still evil. They are. For instance, in John chapter 11, when Jesus walks up to the tomb of His friend Lazarus who's died and He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, And Jesus knows that in just a moment, he's going to transform this scene of grief and loss and and suffering into a huge party. And yet, even in the midst of that, Jesus, he walks up to the tomb. And most translations say something like, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. But literally what that word means is he was quaking with rage. Jesus was angry at death. Jesus was furious at the tomb. And even though he's about to use it to reveal God's glory, that doesn't mean it's still not evil. It is. What it means is that Jesus is able to use all of that evil, to take all of that evil and to weave it into a much bigger story, a much more glorious story. Or we could say it like this. Jesus is able to take this and turn it into this. Jesus is able to take all of our groanings and transform it into a much more beautiful, much more glorious story than would have ever existed without the evil and the suffering in it. Because when I play this, do you notice that this, it's still there. 
the groaning is still there. The Holy Spirit is able to come into our lives and take that groaning and turn it all into a gospel ecosystem of groaning solidarity. In other words, that means that, yeah, we're still groaning, but the Holy Spirit is groaning with us. Jesus is groaning with us. The Father is groaning with us, and he's using all of that as part of something much bigger and far more beautiful than it could have ever been without the groaning. Friends, listen. This does not mean that we should simply not fight evil and injustice in this world. We should. This does not mean that we should simply capitulate to abuse and oppression in this world. We should not. But sometimes when you've done all that you can do, the groaning still remains. We still live in a fallen world and we'll never be able to fully escape it in this life. What do we do in the midst when that happens? We want to find some way to get out of the suffering. Our instinct is to get out of the suffering. But in John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. And what happens if we do that? He says, if you abide in me, the Father will prune every branch so that it may bear more fruit. That means God is making us more like Jesus. Yay! But the way he's doing it is by cutting us with a pruning knife. Ouch! Because not only does pain hurt, pain makes us feel like God has abandoned us. And when we're in pain, we just want to feel the sunshine of God's loving presence. But so often, all we feel is groaning and darkness. When that happens, even though God is, is, is pruning us with his loving knife, we want to get out from under the knife. Everything inside of us tries to do that. But the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and groans with us so that we can stay under the knife to make us more like Jesus. Because friends, here's the big takeaway this morning. If you remember one thing, remember this. The Holy Spirit doesn't make the Christian life easy. He makes it possible. He makes it possible for us to stay under the knife, possible for us to become more like Jesus, possible for us to groan with hope. You know, so often our groaning in this world, it feels like we're groaning because God is absent. But this is a God who is especially present in the midst of our groaning. That means that our groaning over God's absence is really an experience of his presence because you wouldn't even be groaning in the first place if God wasn't already at work and present in your life in the midst of it. The Holy Spirit doesn't make the Christian life easy. He makes it possible. He makes it possible for you to stay. Jesus stayed on the cross when the suffering came down, when the knife went in, and when he was abandoned by God, he stayed so that when we feel abandoned, we can stay because Jesus stayed, and in so doing, we can become more like Jesus, both in his groaning and in his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning, for you are a good father who loves your children, and we pray that you would help us this morning to stay to groan, but Lord, to know that you are groaning with us for you love us and you're a good father and that even though there are things that happen in our lives that we don't understand, that we'll never understand this side of eternity, Father, we trust you and we pray that you will fill us with more of your Holy Spirit this morning to know that, um, that you are with us, that you'll never leave us and forsake us and to trust you that you are making us more like your son Jesus, both in his groaning and in his glory and all for your glory. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.